This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Seal and I'm joined today by the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, and Lucy Fisher of the Times Radio, shortly to be joining Financial Times. I think the big news today, obviously, is the death of Nigel Lawson at the age of 91. Fraser, we had in the lunchtime email today a tribute by the Prime Minister. Talk us through Nigel Lawson and why he was such a titanic figure in post-war British politics. I would say that he was easily the most consequential Chancellor of the post-war era. Um, And the interesting thing is, why was it that when Rishi Sunak became Chancellor, he had a portrait of Nigel Lawson on his wall? I mean, typically chancellors would have other heroes from the last century and stuff. But what interests me is what lessons Rishi Sunak drew from that particular part of history, which tells us not just about history, but what he's trying to do now. Now, the aspects he admired of Nigel Lawson was he was a radical, but a radical who prepared very heavily for the political battle. So you'd make the arguments first, then when you've made them and won them, you then do the reform. If you look at what Liz Truss did, she took tax down to 40%, like Nigel Lawson did. He took it from 60 to 40 Back in, this, in the 70s, when um, Dennis Healy was boasting about how he would tax the rich until the pips squeak, he was, um, I think the top rate was 86%, hell of a high rate of tax. And at that time, the richest 1% paid just 11% of income tax. Now, that wasn't very low. I mean, when Lawson then took the top rate down to 40%, you then saw a transformation. So the top 1% went on to pay 20% of income tax, almost twice as much as they did. Now, this is the paradox, what JFK called the paradoxical truth about taxation, how in certain circumstances, lower tax rates can lead to higher yields. So the most effective way of taxing the rich until the pipsqueak was to actually cut their tax rate. So that is why he's a hero for lots of low-tax Tories, of which Rishi Sunak is one. But you might ask, well, if Sunak is such a fan of low taxation, why are taxes at a 77-year high right now? And that's because of the other Nigel Lawson lesson, that you only do this when you're prepared for the battle. When you've cut the size of the government first, then you can cut the tax. And that, to Rishi Sunak, is what distinguishes him from, say, Reagan. Reagan would cut taxes first and then starve the beast. Liz Truss did the same. She lasted just a few days. So I think Sunak sees Nigel Lawson, the hero, for not just for cutting the tax, but for winning the arguments so he was able to create the political environment where it was possible to do that and then be proven right by his results. Lucy, we're recording this this week, and it's 10 years this Saturday since Margaret Thatcher died. Obviously, Nigel Lawson's just passed away. Do you think there's a danger that today's you know, Conservatives, with the challenges that we're now facing, we've got the highest post-war tax burden, uh, 75 years, you've got so many issues facing the state, and there's a danger that those kind of lessons of Nigel Lawson and Margaret Thatcher are now being lost? Well, I think it's interesting with the death of Nigel Lawson, it's useful to consider his legacy in some depth. And I think that is, you know, happening. That does feel that debate has started. He was such a huge, giant political colossus that it's important, I think, for Conservatives, anyone of any political colour to to look at um, what he did. 
I do think it's uh, interesting and instructive that the, the phrase that Rishi Sunak used in his tribute to, to Lawson and the Spectator today was serious radicalism. I think under Liz Truss, we had unserious radicalism, not least because she failed to roll the pitch in terms of making the argument, prepping the markets, but because I don't think she or Kwasi Kwarteng had really done the thinking. Now, I'm prepared to believe that Rishi Sunak and those around him in number 10 do have the intellectual backdrop to do more of the thinking. But I'm not sure that they have the manoeuvre room within the current Conservative Parliamentary Party to make the kind of seismic changes that we saw um, Nigel Lawson and Margaret Thatcher make. And I think particularly some of the 2019 Tory intake wouldn't necessarily be um, prepared for for the kind of changes and, and big kind of tax cuts that would see the state but also I'm not sure that the public is in that place at the moment and there aren't the outriders and bar some of you know the, the intellectual colossuses of the spectator making the argument for that so it feels to me that the debate is just so far away from the kind of cutting cutting the state that would allow you to, to reach those tax cuts that to me I don't see that coming certainly not this side of a general election uh, and Fraser we should probably also mention of course before his uh, great achievements in number 11 um Nigel Lawson was, of course, the editor of The Spectator for four years. Um, have you spent much time reading his old articles and old editions? Yeah, when I first became editor, I went for lunch with him. That was one of my, the greatest joys of getting this job, because you get to an excuse, right, to have lunch with people who were also my personal heroes as well as my predecessors. I mean, Charles Moore, Dominic Lawson. I was such a fan of Dominic Lawson, I actually named my younger son after him. Um, <laughs> that is true. Um, and then, of course, Nigel Lawson. And... Um, and Nigel, at the time, he was telling me that, don't worry, the biggest problem with your job, Fraser, is all these massive journalistic lunches. You'll put on weight and you'll be absolutely huge. Now, I have to say that um, I don't want to give too many, too many trade secrets, but um, what, what time are we recording this, James? Uh, we're recording this at uh, 3.30. And what's in front of me right now? Nando's. So I am not living the Nigel Lawson dream. I don't think he imagined me having takeaway chicken at four o'clock for your lunch. But, but nevertheless, I, I came to know him reasonably well over the years, well enough to be able to send him emails to ask him advice for certain things. And I actually think that one of the mo- more important parts of his legacy was what he did in the House of Lords. Now, you can look, I mean, there's so, there's so much, by the way, of his active um, time as Chancellor in the Commons to draw lessons from. But in the leading article of The Spectator this week, we point out, I think one of his most profound quotes was what he made about consensus. He was saying whenever there is a consensus behind global warming or climate change or lockdown, you end up with a dangerous dysfunction in a democracy where nobody is really challenging, nobody is asking the difficult questions. In that environment, this is where the greatest policy mistakes can be created because there's nobody there to stop them. And he saw this as a kind of demon in democracy, if you like, this the need to bow down behind, behind the in front of the hastily assembled altars of new fashionable conceits. Every time that happens, he said, that the taxpayers and the public risk being seriously underserved because it's going to be a huge mistake. He didn't think, for example, that the international aid programme was being thought through very carefully. And he's right. I mean, at the moment, the international aid budget is being used to spend £6 million a day keeping asylum seekers in hotels. Now, you know, are we really saying that we can't think of better ways of helping the third world poor than than this? But nobody really asks many questions about it because it's all... um, 
in a hole which needs to be sunk. So he was the great kind of challenger of consensuses. And he used his position in the House of Lords to do that. So the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee would often be the one that would slay the um, sacred cows, that would ask questions nobody else would. And I've always, as a journalist, taken his, um, his, um, his point to heart, that where there is a consensus, then it's up to journalists to challenge because politicians aren't going to. Um, that's not to say you necessarily disagree with it, but in the best ideas in the world, there is always flabbiness that needs to be identified and teased out. So when lockdown came along, for example, and there was a cross-party consensus behind it, I did think it was important that the spectator should follow the Lissonian spirit and try to put as many you know, um, constructive but rigorous critiques of his policy as we could. So like many, many people, I've been thinking, what would Nigel do at various stages of my career? Let's move on from uh, consensus to the opposite, to conflict. And, and Lucy, today the government's announced this uh, new sewage plan. There's been a real issue thus far in the local elections. Talk us through why the government's doing it now. And have they really got a grip of this issue, given the sort of various newspaper campaigns and political opposition that their current existing model has currently evoked? Well, in a word, no. And uh, I think the government after 13 years of Conservative-led administrations, is at risk in, in this area, on the, in the environment and protecting the UK's waterways, um, as in other areas like migration, at risk of just sort of being asked that question. You know, 13 years, what have you done? Uh, today, one of the, the central pillars of the plan uh, for clean water unveiled by Therese Coffey is a, is a proposal to ban plastic wet wipes. Well, this is the third time that that's been uh, announced. Gove announced that in 2018, uh, George Eustace again in 2021. Here we are two years later and it's coming around again. You know, why hasn't this issue been gripped? And it is so visceral, those pictures absolutely revolting of brown sewage being pumped into beautiful you know, azure waters around the British coast, um, into rivers, uh, and particularly when, since the pandemic, we're a nation of you know, wild swimming uh, enthusiasts and you know, a, na- a, a, a nation of nature lovers. It does, to me, feel shocking that a conservative government isn't conserving nature. So it does feel all uh, a little uh, t- too little too late. And I think it is a big problem uh, for the government, not only heading into the locals, but the next election. One thing I will say, and going back to Fraser's point about how important it is for uh, the government of the day to be properly opposed, whether that is by journalists or indeed the opposition, Her Majesty's opposition of the day, I do think there are big question marks for Jim McMahon, the Shadow Environment Secretary, who is widely seen to have been doing, uh, you know, quite uh, underperforming in that role, not really grasping uh, the baton to, to beat the uh, Tory government um, over the head over their record on this in the past year, when there's been so much data that's been been sort of that's emerged it's been driven out by journalists on just how bad the sewage issue is and so I wouldn't be surprised if as is widely being tipped he is demoted in the reshuffle we're expecting on the Labour benches between the local elections and the summer recess. And Lucy also talking of personnel I mean you know we all remember how Michael Gove was very effective in DEFRA after the 2017 election really sort of sees that issue I mean do you think perhaps there's also a case of there's some rumours about potential government reshuffle as well and given the issues that DEFRA has been facing could be some change there as well perhaps? Let's see. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard some whispers on that front too. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see some tweaks before 
the end of the year. I'm not sure how how soon that that will come. But I would say going back to um, Teresa's predecessor, uh, uh, but, but one George Eustace, I I have been really depressed to hear how defeatist he has been on this issue. You know, he's been out on the airwaves saying, well, look, it'll cost billions of pounds to change the you know the Victorian infrastructure around our sewage systems. Basically, it's too expensive and can't be done. I'm really unimpressed by that kind of attitude. And Fraser, the other big story of the day, of course, is Finland joining NATO. And you've got a sort of interest in Scandinavian countries. Um, just talk us through the story today. And, um, you know, it's just another sign, perhaps, of Putin's invasion of Ukraine backfiring. Well, yeah, but this is an incredible historic moment. I mean, Finland, throughout the Cold War, thought it would stay um, neutral in every way. It didn't even join the Eurovision Song Contest. It thought it would compete in the Soviet Intervision one instead. So that has all changed now. And um, there's a joke, in the, there's a sort of meme in the Finnish social media right now about giving Putin the award for the NATO Salesman of the Year because only he managed to get um, in Finland and Sweden, both of them together, to uh, apply to NATO. It's difficult to describe um, just what a seismic shift this is, how this changes the way that these countries see themselves. And it's also quite amazing when you think about how, how polarised the world was during the 60s and 70s, how e- even then they didn't feel the need to join the Western defence bloc, but now they do, such as being the egregious nature of, of Putin's behaviour. So I do think it is incredibly significant. There is no way that this is anything other than a devastating blow for Putin because, of, after all, NATO was his sworn enemy. He was the one that's been going around saying that it was NATO versus Russia. And NATO has undeniably got a lot stronger. And Finland, of course, has got a very long border with Russia. So it is um, you know, it is quite historical moments. And I think it's also significant that Britain basically cut a defence deal as well, saying to Sweden, you know, look, we're going to have you back until such times as you as, as you sign up. So, th- of course, there are lots of more questions now, like what will happen if, you know, Ukraine wants to join um, the EU or even NATO, etc. I don't think either of those two things are, are going to happen. But they do raise the stakes, um, I think, and they, they will certainly do nothing to make Putin um, less convinced that there is a sort of semi-existential war going on here. So all of this does mean that Ukraine's got a far higher um, endgame if Putin thinks he's basically fighting for, for survival. How far will he go? Well, he recently we heard he's moving some nuclear weapons to, to Belarus, you know, not saying he's going to deploy them, just that he's going to move them there. So we do see in all of this the um, mistakes getting higher. Fraser, can I ask you a question? I know you follow Swedish politics yeah. um, quite closely. Obviously, Finland's joined uh, NATO today, becoming the 31st member. It looks like hopes of Sweden joining, at least by the time of this big uh, NATO summit in Vilnius in July, are fading because Hungary has now joined Turkey in raising objections. Where do you think Sweden's accession to the alliance is, is going? Well, this, this is a very strange situation. All of Sweden desperately, was, like, as soon as Finland made its mind up, Sweden was thinking, OK, we're going to go in lockstep with you. There was never any question of one them doing what the other wouldn't do. But of course, you are subject to a NATO veto. And you've got this bizarre situation now, which goes down to, for example, the Swedish um, gangland crime going on right now. One of the main malefactors is called the Kurdish fox who's living out there. So the Swedes have got lots of Kurds who the Turks want to get their hands on. Erdogan's got a little wish list, which the Swedes thought, to look, you can't be serious. You're not really going to block Sweden joining NATO because of because you want us to hand you over some bird. And when it's turned out, yes, Hungary can now play the same game. So there is still a sort of a sense in Sweden that this is just too crazy to last, that these countries will drop their objections. 
And that's sort of my feeling as well. But I never actually thought, to be honest, we'd be at a situation where Finland joins, but Sweden doesn't, because Sweden's got too many international enemies. So I'm actually I'm going out to Sweden next month to try to understand this Kurdish fox element more for myself. It's You would never really have thought that the any continent's politics could get so bad that the formation of NATO is stopped over a, a war about um, ganglands and a war about um, ha- handing over baddies that Erdogan wants his hands on. Then again, there's going to be a Turkish election on May the 14th, and Erdogan may well end up out of power, so perhaps objections might end then. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. <laughs>